0: Art of Time Ensemble presents Dance to the Abyss at Harborfront Center Theater, February twenty third to the twenty fifth. Step back in time to the nineteen twenties and immerse yourself in the decadent world of the Weimar Republic. Join us for a night of cabaret and jazz-inspired songs as we explore the music that once defined an era on the brink of catastrophe. Featuring the work of Jewish composers Erwin Schulhoff, Misha Spolansky, and musicians Wallace Holiday, Kevin Turcott, Andrew Barashko, Drew Jarrett. Girass- and more. Tickets on sale now at harborfrontcenter.com. Use promo code cabaret25 to receive 25% off your tickets.
1: This is Bonjour Chai, the potato Latka on a bike edition. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi and special guest Emile Scher. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk about banning books. We talk about censoring ideas. We talk about the role of the library in a public space. All this and more coming up. Yeah. Emile Scher, he is an author in many, many different formats, including children's, young adult, adult fiction, plays, screenplays. He'll tell me if there's any other formats that I have missed out on. Um, He is also the writer-in-residence of the Jewish Public Library in Montreal, a place which, for reasons I will explain very shortly, is very, very near and dear to me. Emile, welcome to Bonjour Chai.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, Avi and Phoebe. I really really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you
1: so much for joining us. So what does a writer-in-residence do?
2: That's a great question. You could be a poet, filmmaker. I mean, it's a, artist in residence is an umbrella term that you see more and more often. Traditionally, a writer in residence is given support to both work on a creative work of their own choosing, or to work on a manuscript, and to engage with community. So, what it is, what I'm doing in terms of the Jewish Public Library, where I grew up, born and raised in Montreal, we we did, of course, a, a talk this week on book banning. The in terms of engaging with community and at the same time working on a manuscript. I am. Uh, I'm sending out weekly essays, and they're basically. I was going to drastic. say
1: these letters to your daughters, which are really exactly. beautiful. Yeah, yeah.
2: So the manuscript I'm working on is a form of engaging community because what I'm doing is I'm sharing on a weekly basis uh, a manuscript that I've been calling "Daughters of Abraham," and its roots are in fact uh, my daughters went to the same Jewish summer camp where I worked for many, many years. Although they're they're born in Toronto, they were both at McGill, and I thought, how am I going to try to engage them with Jewish learning? And I am, by and large, was raised as a secular Jew in Montreal. And, of course, as I get older, I find myself wading deeper and deeper into the waters of Judaism and finding more and more meaning as I as I dive in. And I knew that they would not likely uh, want to unpack a weekly Parsha. So I thought, well, what can I do that almost could parallel that experience to a certain degree? I was introduced to the works of Abraham Joshua Heschel. And, of course, I started reading these Heschel quotes, and they spoke to me. And if you're, I think, a Jewish progressive, I think much of Heschel's writings would... Um, would resonate with you, and I think it's worth taking a little sidebar and mentioning his daughter, Susanna Heschel, is for those of you who put an orange on your Seder plate during Passover, she she basically initiated that. So I basically sent, as they were undergrads at McGill, uh, via email, a Heschel quote, and I used a book called Essential Writings, which Susanna Heschel edited, Mm -hmm. of Heschel's varied and and very large body of work, sent a Heschel quote and just riffed on it. Here's my thoughts on this quote. Do with it what you will, no expectation that they would necessarily dive into it on a daily basis, a regular basis. I simply wanted to plant that seed. I did that over the course of a Jewish year, so I had 52 emails, if you will. And of course, I thought, the writer in me thought, gee, is there a wider audience for this? Well, and so when I had this opportunity to work as a writer in residence at the, at the JPL, I thought this seemed like an opportune moment to work on the manuscript, but even probably more importantly, introduce. The JPL community to the works of Abraham Joshua Heschel, and equally, you know, frame it as as a, as a literary work, and that's what i what I will be doing as writer in residence.
3: Well, that's really so, cool.
1: So my um, my connection to the Jewish Public Library is that for 36 years, my father was the reference librarian at the Jewish Public Library. Mm-hmm. I. I pretty much grew up there um, in and out all the time. I, I shelved books. I, uh, I indexed card from the card catalog. I was always, I, I was, or helping things or with the the um, the, the checkout cards. I was, uh, you know, filing and organizing and I was always around. I was part of the, the library community. And then when I returned to Montreal, uh, I joined the board actually, which I served on until my relocation uh, several months ago. So I, I have a connection. I no longer have a formal connection, but It will always be deep in my heart. Uh, You know that that's going to be necessary for whatever we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, But that the library has always, you know, been a huge part of my life, Um, and uh, there will always be a huge part of my heart in in my life for the Jewish Public Library in Montreal. And I'm just glad that you are part of it. So you can you tell us, uh, moving more to some of the topical stuff that we are dealing with. You gave this talk about the history of censorship and banning books. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about it without uh, us having been on the Zoom?
2: Uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, I was introduced again, because of programming. I work with the programming people at the JPL. So in this instance, I thought I would do one on Hannah's suitcase, which I adapted. You're likely familiar with the Karen Levine book, beautiful book, uh, called Hannah suitcase and very moving. We can talk about that if the opportunity arises. So I thought I could do a presentation on Hannah suitcase, but they came and said, no, let's see, what can we do uh, to mark freedom to read week? And that was terrific. Um, and so the initial, well, no, the, the, the initial intent didn't change. I thought I would just do an overview. You know, I'm not a, an authority on book banning by any means, but I did a bit of research. I'm familiar enough, as we all are, with the books that have been banned. Uh, one of them, I mean, it, it's it's just jaw-dropping. Uh, in Florida, I kept kept circling back to Florida, the things that are happening in Florida, and Moms for Liberty, etc. And there's one of the people who works in the library, one of the programming, the head of programming, um, uh, Morgan, uh, Morgan Liebner, is from Florida. So during my talk earlier this week, I kept talking about Florida. I said, you know, Morgan, excuse me if you feel there's a target on your shirt, because so, so much of this book banning and intolerance springs from Florida. And the latest that I had heard was they had one county in Florida had banned a dictionary. So I was familiar with, with the extremes and length that people are going to. But I was also drawn to it because, again, if you're in the arts, you're always looking for the subtext, the layer beneath what you actually see on the surface. And so, and, and also what I think is so central to any type of creative endeavor is the questioning, that I don't think it's enough to stop and say, oh, my God, what idiots, what small-minded fools, you know, for, for banning a dictionary, because then where does that get you? Like, that's just a one-way, you know, that's a dead end. And I just think it's so important to the degree that you can to have a conversation about the very thing that could be discomforting, but you simply get, that can be a challenge to have. So that was part of my take and looking for the contradictions. So I did a bit of research and I'd remembered years ago, I'd read a, a it was a one page spread in the New York Times book review by a novelist and author named Nora Krug. And she talked about Mein Kampf. And even then I thought, am I going to introduce Mein Kampf at the Jewish Public Library? Where will that lead? But she, her story was just um fascinating. She actually ended up being married into a Jewish family, a lot of history of anti Semitism with her own life growing up in Germany. And she did this and she talked about how, I believe it was in 49 when Mein Kampf was banned in Germany. It, this is a, a quote from this lovely graphic novel type spread that she did in the New York Times book review. Germany offers only annotated version of only an annotated version of Mein Kampf. The ban was lifted in twenty sixteen Proceeds of Mein Kampf, a critical edition, are donated to an organization that supports victims of the Nazi regime. This part I love. The book's interior layout is inspired by the Talmud. Its 3,500 annotations dissect Adolf Hitler's message. And so what I was drawn to is just wherever there's some type of tension, I think at the heart of all storytelling is some type of tension, dramatic or otherwise. And so to have a German author, you know, who's who is steeped and of course, the whole that ethos, if you will, and was familiar with the anti-Semitism within her own family, I'm drawn to that type of tension wherever possible. So the wider arc, yes, it was about book banning, but that inherently speaks to these contradictions that I've just wanted to explore to the degree that I could. And so I did almost a, an overview, if you, if, you, if you will. And I also, um, wherever possible, I want to also introduce the arts and the role that artists, capital A artists, and art can make in exploring these difficult themes. And so I just want to share one other quote that I, I think many of your listeners will be familiar with. Often and I will paraphrase it as it often is. Uh, you know, when, if you when you burn books, you know, you, you next you'll be burning people. I imagine many, some of your listeners will be familiar with that. But let me ask you. So, what what do you think the context is for that quote? It's Heinrich Heine. I may not be pronouncing his name. Age German author, I think, poet as well. Any any idea of where? Where that was first phrased, in other words. what was the context? I mean,
3: I know about him because I wrote about him in my doctoral dissertation, So I do, but I don't know specifically where that quote comes from.
2: One could easily see how that one would think, oh, he said that like in an interview, or he wrote that in an essay. And in fact, it came from a stage play. And so that's what I mean about, ah, you see, you can use the world of fiction and the make-believe to confront some really harsh truths. So I just want to give the context. It was from an 1821 play called Almansor, spoken by the Muslim Hassan upon hearing that Christian conquerors burned the Quran at the marketplace of Granada. And the quote from the play that this character says is, that was but a prelude where they burn books, they will ultimately burn people as well. And I I never knew that. And I just thought, well, what that does is reinforce, again, just the role of creativity, of capital A art in, in, as I say, just confronting things that I think, are not as easily confronted in everyday speech, if you will.
3: So can I ask something just about, like, I guess when when people talk about book banning or, you know, the stifling of speech... I think it often gets tricky because there are so many different things that that could refer to. It could refer, obviously, there's the, you know, government actually bans speech or artists or writers are actually, you know, subject to violence. There's that level. But then there's also stuff about that that becomes more like curatorial choices about what different places showcase, whether they have certain missions, whether they're. You know, whether it's a children's library or, you know, like a, a library in a school and all of that. And I think like the the local uh, bookstore near me in Toronto has literally on its bookmarks social justice, mm-hmm. which tells you there are the books that would and wouldn't be sold there. It's not that they're saying ban the ones that aren't sold there, but you know what I'm saying? So like, I guess mm-hmm. what I'm wondering about in my rambling way is really just how you define book. Banning, like where where would you? Is it just these extreme cases where the government steps in, or is it uh, or violent, you know, people in the community step in, or is it something else? Like what what should be the line?
2: Uh, I think that's a great question. What what comes to mind as I hear you speak, and I I really appreciate bringing that 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 very question to the table, is who pulls the levers? So now that you're talking about a wide spectrum of how do we define book banning. And to me, that begs the question: Who's doing the banning? Because I think that's sort of it's like you know, crack that further open. Who who is entrusted to make these decisions? And so, I don't think there's one particular answer. I think that's worth. So, I think it's worth. I guess what that would lead me to is, yeah. What is the process? What are the institutions? How did we institutionalize this process? And what is that? And how what is it reflective of? So, for example, my understanding, and again, I don't want to be quoted on this, but I think in several school counties in the states, all it takes is one parent. To say, I don't want my child reading this Gender queer is one of the most banned books or bo- challenged or um, Sherman Alexis. I find it frightening that the one parent can decide, I find this book objectionable, don't want my child to read it, for that book to re- be removed from a high school library shelf. That's my understanding. That's how it could happen. So, um, so yeah, I think it is a, it's, um, you're getting into language as well. And I, and I appreciate that because I react the same way, the weight of language. What does it mean to ban a book? Does it mean it's completely removed? Does it mean it's burned? There's absolutely... Book banning and book burning are close cousins. So I, I would I would say, if I had to give in, in, in direct response to your question, I would define it as denying one individual, if you will. And actually, one individual or institution, and let's let's understand institution to be a government, denying another institu- another individual the right to read a particular story, narrative manuscript, poem, whatever you choose. And do you think
3: there's an age cap? I guess that's the other aspect of it, because I'm just thinking about how in the States it's always done in the sort of think of the children angle or not always, but very often it's about, you know, what, what do people want children to be exposed to? And I think my own take on this is this is very different if you're talking about, you know, five-year-olds. And if you're talking about high school students and given what high school students are already seeing on the internet, you know, it seems like the idea that a high school library is going to ban something just seems a little um, interesting way of thinking about it. But I don't know. How, how do you see it as a children's book author yourself?
2: No, I agree. Uh, and I think there is, I think there is some consideration that has to be given to younger children in terms mm-hmm. of age appropriate. And not only, not necessarily that you're using the proper language, same thing with sexuality, right? You wouldn't use, you would use certain, you would certainly use language with a group of 15-year-olds that would be inappropriate for a group of five-year-olds in terms of introducing them to that. So I think there there can be a distinction. Um, and he also raised a good point, which I mentioned this past week, or I may have, I believe I mentioned it, that conversations about banned books, particularly with high schools, by the way, most of the most of the literature I've read when it comes to banning books in the current climate is high schools, or, or elementary, it's the school setting. You mm-hmm. rarely hear about it in the university setting, bookstores, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and so it, where the conversation has so changed that in 2024, w- one thing that has not changed, um, and Sherman Alexei spoke about this, is that of course nothing sells a book more than banning a book, right? I mean, that's right away. If you want to whet an appetite, ban the book. But particularly with, with these cho- you know teenagers today, I mean, I actually thought about it. Not only could they order it, let's say on Amazon, and they think, "Oh my God!" Well, what if it comes in a brown package back? You don't. It doesn't even have to come to your home. You know, there's these Penguin pickups. You can have it delivered to someone else. So you can literally have the banned book in your hands the next day, so or an ebook, sure. or an ebook. So, so I'm not even sure. And that's why it goes back to the, what I mentioned earlier: the conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have the mother who wants to ban the book "Gender Queer" or doesn't want her child reading "Gender Queer," and you can say, "Well, you know what? We can ban it. We can take it off the bookshelf. We can even..." We can have a, a, a massive bonfire in front of the high school and burn all these books that you're opposed to. Your child could have this book in their hands or, as Phoebe said, on their screen an hour later.
0: Don't take half measures when it comes to home security. Alarms and cameras work. But they'll only tell you that your worst nightmare just came true. Safety screen by Metalex for windows and doors will keep your family safe and sound with real stopping power. They can't be cut, pried, or bashed in, so you can enjoy carefree ventilation in the spring and fall with peace of mind. And protect your fixed windows and doors with rock glass, an absolutely unbreakable clear covering. Call 416-638-2539 or visit metalexsecurity.com to book your free consultation. That's M-E-T-A-L-E-X Security.com. Remember, prevention is always better than the cure.
1: the more immediate discussion that we, you know, want to talk about today is that for years, my father, who, as you know, as I mentioned, was the librarian at the library, I always used to give an example of Mein Kampf, right? I was a kid, I was like, well the library can't possibly have Mein Kampf. Right. That's a horrible book to have. And I was a kid. He goes, no, we have it. We never ban books. We never take books away. Um, we just know that if we kept it on the shelves, people are going to steal it. People are going to deface it. So we keep it behind the shelves where right? we call not in, in the closed stacks, but it's available for anybody to borrow. Um, and uh, if you have a, if you want to read it, you don't even have to come up with a valid reason. Right. If you want to read it, we will lend it to you. You can read it and you, and then you give it back. And, you know, and that's that. Um, this is what happened, and people aren't always aware of the context of banning a book versus putting it in closed stacks for a variety of reasons. This is what happened, I believe, with uh, Elise Gravel's book, which caused a firestorm. Yes.
3: So, can we can we just, as somebody who um, had only learned from you, Avi, about the existence of a Jewish public library in Montreal, um, basically, what is the library in terms of its mission and the ages served? Like, is there a re- like what what does what is the significance of what the, like i need the context for this because um
1: if i can summarize everything the jewish public library has been around for over 100 years as both a public uh, community library as well as a research library in jewish canadian studies and jewish studies in general it is a uh, it's jewish collection rivals many uh, major universities Jewish collections so that means that many students uh, from the Montreal universities would come to Montreal to the Jewish public library if they were researching Jewish studies um, and the Jewish uh, archives at the library are you know also world-class and people will come and study it so it is both a research place and a community library um, you know, so in that sense, it has a, a children's library, it has an adult library, it has a lending library, all of that stuff. Um, the way I understand what happened is that um, e- Elise Gravel, who is an award-winning Quebec uh, author uh, who publishes children's books primarily—if not, I—if if I don't believe exclusively—came um, under fire because she was very vocal on social media, especially Instagram, because of her little drawn cartoon characters. Um, Expressing very, very vocal and very repeated support for the Palestinian cause, repeating many tropes which were uh, not just bordering on antisemitic but like were virulently antisemitic, untruthful in a lot of cases, um, and deeply problematic. The library the way I understand it, the library was pressured by many Jewish communal organizations to remove horror books from the, the stacks, um, either to, to remove them completely or to put them in the closed stacks. They chose, they bowed from the pressure, to, and they put them in the closed stacks, meaning that their books were available to borrow, but they weren't available in public. Um, this is despite many other libraries saying that her opinions are objectionable, but we are not going to take her books away. No, the Cote saint Luke Library did not, which is basically as Jewish a library as it gets, because you know, it's pretty, you know, uh, it's 90% Jewish or whatever it's going to be, but it's not officially a Jewish library. Uh, Many other librarians expressed support for keeping the books there even while disapproving of her opinions or approving of her opinions, whatever it might be. Um, And Well, there's a big
3: difference between allowing- Yeah, no, yeah, okay. Regardless of that,
1: that spread, everybody was saying the books should stay there. Um, And the, uh, so the, under pressure from Jewish communal organizations, the library put them in their closed stacks, but then after- much public pressure, including public protests by uh, IJV, Independent Jewish Voices, in front of the library, um, as well as a lot of online discussion, the library went and returned her books to the public open stacks.
2: Well, and, but, and, it does, and as Avi mentioned, and it, this is an argument we can expect that, but still worth restating, is separating the art from the artist. So, so at least, and I actually asked a friend, Jewish friend, teacher, now living in Toronto, but born and raised in Montreal, Two daughters, three children, adult children, two live in Israel. And I asked specifically about Elise Gravel. Would you have Elise Gravel books in your house? And she said yes. And she actually mentioned Roald Dahl. And I I spoke at length about Roald Dahl at my talk this week at the JPL. Because uh, certainly you're talking about a much larger landscape, if you will, global. And some of the things he said overtly, and I'll just share a couple. There's a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. I am certainly anti-Israel and I've become anti-Semitic. And he makes reference to the, um, you know, the, the powerful American Jewish bankers. So we're getting a sense of who he is. It's not and just
1: him. I mean, it's T. S. Eliot was also virulently Absolutely. anti-Semitic. Wagner was anti-Semitic. So um, you,
2: you, know, and you know, and so, but then Spielberg, you know, creator of Schindler's List, filmed an adaptation of a Roald Dahl book called BFG, Big Friendly Giant, and he talked about the paradox. And that's what I think. Again, I, I'm much more drawn to that par- paradox and that conflict. And I think if you have a child, we talk about age appropriate. I think there is value in, in teaching a five- or six-year-old who maybe has an Elise Gravel picture book, who has more, a more royal, royal doll book. I mean, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, all this Willy Wonka. And to explain that somebody who really has, says hurtful things, thinks hurtful thoughts, can still create a beautiful picture book. And to be able to hold that tension, even within, as a five-year-old can, in their own five-year-old way, equally the 55-year-old can as well. Uh, what I will say is that, and I arrived, so my, my residency began this month, and it sort of coincided with the uh, arrival of a new executive director, Alain uh, Danzinger. Uh, and again, it's probably worth noting, he came from the Grand Ballet Canadien, so again, the world of ballet. And so even that provides some context. And I mention him because, again, I can't speak to previous administrations, it wouldn't be fair or you know, to anyone involved, but the phrase that, that Alain has mentioned more than once is critical thinking. And that's a phrase that I embrace. Again, that's another phrase you can unpack uh, and and define in many ways. But I I interpret critical thinking to answer your questions, Zach, is that in fact um, is is to con- to give everything the due consideration it deserves. And when I say everything, it could be material that's objectionable. Doesn't mean there aren't instances like I'm not sure you could sell a book on on you know. Th- uh, Ten Easy Steps to Lynching a Black Person, you know, chapter one. I mean, it just would not, you know, I don't imagine that would pass muster. So I don't want you, but so the idea of critical thinking, I think, is such uh, a crucial and essential lens upon which to consider all the material, all the books.
3: Well, can I just ask something about this, um, which is just... So I, I should say, like, my prior here is I say the book should be on the shelf. I, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not against that. I, I think she is not somebody I'd probably get along with well. But the point is, I guess what I'm wondering about is whether you see a difference um, between someone who's deceased and somebody who is a sort of earlier career, you know, making their name. Because I think that that might be like some of what's going on here is that there's a sense of... That you're not just endorsing, I that like separating art from artist. I think is a lot easier when you're talking either about somebody who's no longer living or somebody whose reputation is just so long since established. Mm. So you have people who whatever don't like Woody Allen, but like will watch a Woody Allen movie, and it just like who we're all these but dots compared to Woody Allen in the world. You know what I mean? But I feel like if you're talking about somebody who's uh who's still making their name, you know, is maybe is that are the stakes different?
2: I would say I, I would almost I, I would almost invite that like another the, the dead person has come and gone mm-hmm. again because then it's more active it's more mm-hmm. in the moment and it just I would actually in, invite a living author whose whose works are obje, who, whose whose pronouncements are obje, are objectionable whose perspective who it could be anti semitic could be racist uh, a, a virulent misogynist if you you know all that I would say it just makes the discussion more lively and, and immediate and so I would. Actually, not. I wouldn't say prefer, but I would not negate it in any way, because one can even say, well, wait, wait. the jury's not in yet. You know, this person's only 30 and written two books. Let's wait until they're 60 and written 10. I don't think we have to wait, because I think the same dynamic is there and is worthy of, of exploring and confronting.
4: We call it, we keep talking with the Jewish Public Library, and Avi compared it to the municipal Cote St. Luke Library. But,
1: well, I, um, I made a distinction that that is a community library. The Jewish Public Library has dual functions as both a research library and a public library.
4: Well, but it's not. The thing that I want to ask is, is it public is, or, or is it a private institution? Um, because if it's a private institution, there's a part of me that thinks like like a bookstore, I don't think a private bookstore should have to carry books they don't want to carry. Um, and if you're a Catholic library, you you know, you can have a collection that leans into your values. Um, it's different when it's a public, government-funded by all the taxpayers type of thing. So I was curious. A, do you see that as an as a distinction that is worth thinking
2: about here? I, I don't. I can't say with certainty, but it is a public library in terms of it's a nonprofit. Uh, And so I think that in and of itself, it's accountable to a board, of course, but as opposed to a private institution, I think you raised that there's an important distinction between the two. So it's by no means, I think, would anyway, could be considered a private institution. But because it's a public uh, institution, if your mandate is one that is geared towards the public, all the more reason to consider the very material that a private institution wouldn't consider, and would just fold their arms and say, too bad, you know, we run the show here. So I think, in some ways, the responsib- responsibility is even greater, uh, and and again, the decisions require a lot of weight.
1: You look, I I have made no bones publicly, although I'm not on too much on social media. I've spoken to people about this and I'll say this on the show. I think the library made the wrong decision by initially pulling the books from public, from the public stacks. I totally
2: agree. And I, think many, I agree. It was a mistake. I think it was a big
1: mistake. Um, I think it was pressure from uh, members of the Jewish community and Jewish communal organizations that are really looking very small-minded way. They did not ask for T.S. Eliot's books to be pulled. They did not ask for Roald Dahl's books to be pulled. What I think was a missed opportunity and in the days since has really shown itself is that at 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 least Ravel is the type of person that's willing to have dialogue. Is willing to be able to say my books have nothing to do with this. She also um, has on her Instagram. I'm blocking
3: all books. Zionists who have. I'm, all, I'm blocking all right wing Zionists or something. I am, but I am was, fine with somebody yeah. saying that okay. and saying
1: that I am mistaken. She actually. I saw that yesterday on Instagram. She posted. Let us support Jews who support certain opinions. And she's saying, look, I care about Jews. I'm not saying that I think Jews are evil. I've. Re- I, I've. I've figured out that this is a mistaken approach. I am going to you know be better about this, and I'm going to say that this is. What's going on? I, you know, I, I, and I think that we missed an opportunity for, for example, the writer in residence of the Jewish Public Library to engage in a dialogue publicly with, the writer, uh, with a famous writer who can go and say, I have a principled stance that I'm trying to take, and I want to be able to discuss these things. Um, I, I know that that happened in private, for example, with Sija, that, that she ended up did meeting with them. But you know, this public airing of ideas, I think that that to me is the real book burning that happens and, and book banning that happens in today's day and age is, as we've said, it's not about books being banned. It's about ideas being banned. It's about saying that this idea is wrong.
3: Avi, at a Jewish high school, mm-hmm. would, would genderqueer be on the shelves? In the so at a Jewish high school,
1: so first of all, I, I mean, I may disagree with this. I okay. grew up in a very, very religious Jewish high school in Montreal. And, mm-hmm. you know, there would be stuff like the Guinness Book of Records because it was so popular was on the shelf but they would add in with like magic marker like skirts and long sleeves onto the gymnasts or something like that right? And then they would, and they would deliberately not have certain books. So, so, Um,
3: so free speech for, for thee, but not for me or some such. No, I mean, I I think it's just interesting. No, but they
1: don't believe. And I don't believe that that's the right approach. I think that I want to be able to tell my children everything and help them make decisions about whatever ideas Mm -hmm. are fine or not. I'm not going to pass judgment on a private school and how good or bad it is. I may disagree with it personally, but I see where they're coming from that they want to have a certain approach and Christian schools do this also. I, I disagree with it, but it's yeah. there. This is a very, very different thing that's going on here, which is basically saying in public institutions, we want to ban certain ideas from happening.
3: Right. I mean, I think we're talking about public high schools, though, that is still children. And then it's still like some of it, it's a little more overlapping. But what I wanted to talk about, though, it's not it's not exactly devil's advocate, but it's more just like taking a step back. So it's Fine and well, and I am doing it too, to talk about the abstract principles of free speech and the value of exchange of ideas and all of this. But there's it's also at the same time necessary to keep in mind the literary community in general and where Jews sit within it. And I'm thinking about something specifically, which was this: um, the Jewish Book Council on February 14th. So Valentine's Day, um, had (laughs) it's little Valentine to the world is something called reporting antisemitism in the literary world. Um, and it it gives you an email address that you can send. It says, if you have experienced or witnessed an antisemitic incident in literary spaces that you'd like to report, please email. And they give you their email address, um, for this, um, with information and a description of what occurred. If you have photos, links, transcripts, communications, video, or screenshots, whatever. So, um, It's interesting because so the reason this came on my radar is that people were posting just in forums I'm in about things, things like some poetry journal saying like no Zionists should send anything in or some things like that. And I think there's something happening. It's not just about Jews. It's not just about Israel. And it's not just post October seventh But um, where you have on the one hand, this right wing push to ban so called woke books, right? But you also have a publishing industry that's pretty monolithic in its own yeah, that's, ideology that's what, I, that's what i just said it's okay. just
1: the both sides
3: are, yeah, are yeah. Engaging so, in the same Avi, issue. let me finish let me finish so what i guess what i'm thinking <laughs> about is i'm thinking about things like my local bookstore and how like the children's books are all very very specific type of politics and that's not just this one bookstore that's like just bookstores generally um in downtown toronto and i would assume in equivalent places throughout north america the publishing industry has its own kind of, um, like, stance, right? And I think some of why somebody like Elise Gravel might be pushing buttons isn't that she's this, like, um, sort of renegade free thinker saying what nobody dares say, but rather what she represents is a mainstream position within literary community. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So I'm saying I think some of what people are reacting to, and I say this as somebody who thinks she should be on the shelf, who also doesn't particularly want to go have coffee with her. I'm saying, sort of, how, are, how would it be received if somebody was trying to write mainstream children's literature, say, and they are a Zionist, and they are not a Zionist who qualifies with a million things, but why they're actually a left-wing Zionist.
2: You know, I think you raise a great point, and I, not, not so much separate, well, again, separating the art from the artist. So what is this Zionist art? So a Zionist writes a poem. What is it in that poem that would be not would not be permissible? If you're saying we, don't, we will not pre- publish this poem, which is completely divorced from anything Zionist because the poet is a Zionist. That is utterly objectionable.
3: Well, most Jews are some sort of Zionist, right? Like, so of one form or another. So that and would that, basically it, mean that, that like three Jews who, who admittedly are probably overrepresented in the field of poetry writing, but yes.
2: Well, so it's, so it's, yeah. so, it's so it's content versus creator. And I so if, if you're saying the creator is banned, that is very frightening to me versus the, the content. That's a whole other conversation you can have. Worthy, not worthy.
3: Well, I am talking a little bit also about the content because I think there is something where children's literature has mainstream children's literature has taken on a very like specific political,
2: yeah, that...
3: sort of like like I'm thinking about all the young adult literature where authors are you know under fire for any sort of violation of political correctness, and this has been going on for years. This is certainly not a post October seventh thing. You can only be in the literary world if you have certain progressive positions, which include specific positions about Israel, but also about a whole host of other issues. So I guess, I guess what I find frustrating is I'm somebody who would like to see all the information out there, all the people reading everything, you know. But it just it seems like it's not that there's. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I don't get the sense that there's one side that's for stifling free expression and another side that's wanting it to flourish. It seems like there's a lot of just everybody wants the free expression of their own views, if that makes sense. And then it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard. It's heartening to hear what you you gave a speech about and all of this, because I feel like a lot of the time it is just this kind of like free expression is selectively embraced as the people who, yeah.
2: I totally agree. And so you're right. It gets mudding and, and whether, and I think there is a, a certainly amongst progressives to only tar those on the right as being intolerant, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you raise a very good point. You yeah, you see it on, you know, and, and I guess I would argue extremes on either end, on any end, is not healthy or productive, and is ultimately doomed to just being, you know, not, not just static, destructive.
3: Hmm. Hmm. So, do Jews and, have a special place for um, in, <laughs> like, in embracing free speech? Is it part? Is it Jewish values? Avi, I'm going to ask you as well for this one. Is it? Is well, it Jewish I, values to support free speech, or is it uh, any are time these, question, are Things unrelated
1: anytime a question like this shows up, I always point to the, and this has come up on the show in the past, and I think I've mentioned this in the past also, that the Talmud already goes to great lengths to preserve wrong opinions, right? About even minor, you know, inconsequential things, but just as much for major ones to go and say, this person is wrong, and yet we preserved his, it's invariably his opinion in the Talmud, um, his opinion um, because one can learn from it, uh, you know, I keep thinking about, I would love to go to a store in the deepest south in Alabama, and go to a bookstore where they carry Ibram Kendi's book, and the person behind the counter tells me, I think this book is wrong, I think this person doesn't have right ideas, right, but I want you to read this book and make the decision for yourself, right? It's not up to the influencer to go and say, right, this this idea is so bad, and I don't think that there's ever a case, and and the cases where we have in the Jewish community, historically, of these things happening, they've always ended very poorly, right? When the When the um, Maimonides' books were banned and they were burned uh, and it ended very poorly it did not go well within the Jewish community it did not go well outside the Jewish community um, and ultimately we don't do this and there are recent examples of uh, censorship that happens uh, especially in the Haredi community there was a famous book called The, the Making of a Guttel*, which was this guy's biography of a very famous uh, rabbi which had some things in the footnotes that were less than hagiographic, and yet this um, book was caused such an uproar. It ended up being banned. Copies now are rare to find, or they're easier to find now because you know it's been twenty-five years on, and you can find it in most major research libraries. Um, but it was so such minor things, but it really backfired because, as you said, nothing does more to a book than banning it because everybody wants to find out what's going on. Ideas always want to be free. Uh, What is it? Cory Doctorow that said information wants to be free. Uh, And just any time you try to stifle any of that information, Judaism understands that and says, no, go ahead, learn it, understand that it's wrong, right? But figure it out for yourself. I don't need, you know, to be the one to go and say, you know, this is a, you know, this is so bad that you shouldn't even read it.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's good. Yeah. I I think the living of the values is important too. And then not drawing the long skirt on somebody is maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I, I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. I think, but again, my concern is the context. So when we talk about Mein Kampf, and there's an annotated version with, I think I said, 3,500 references, if you will. That's a very different reading experience than my, this plucking Mein Kampf off a, shelf, off a shelf. So I think you're right. We do a disservice to the original narrative if we convert it and transform it for, to, to, to reflect uh, modern-day sensibilities. I think what we, what we should do, or our responsibility, is to take the original text and offer the right context. And that So you can do Huckleberry
1: Finn. Have a two-volume two slipcase edition.
2: Which is wonderful. So then a teacher that, that I know everyone in the room today would embrace, who teaches Huckleberry Finn, and there are passages with the N-word, and we know it's toxic. Then you say, this was acceptable at that time. And you can argue how times have changed. And what was once a given is no longer a given. There's value in that. The only concern, as I say, is somebody who takes books without context could, of course— either not necessarily be offended, could be led down the wrong path. You know, in that sense, you know, books, we all know books make, thank goodness, books can make a difference.
1: This has been a wonderful conversation. Books absolutely can and do and should make a difference. Um, Please come back on any time. And thank you for having all this great talk about stuff. We'd love to hear what you thought. Um, please email us with comments uh, and any questions you might have at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Coming up after this, our Nahas, for which Emil has chosen to stick around and tell us about a Are
0: you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you. Or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com.
1: Emil. Thank you for sticking around. What's your nachas this week?
2: My nachas actually came from my, my visit to Montreal this week as part of the uh, residence, uh, writer-in-residence at the Jewish Public Library. Across the street from the library is the Siegel Center. And again, from anyone who's in Montreal, for, I'm old enough to remember it was called the Sadie Bronfman Center at of one course, point. Of course, of course. And what they have is, uh, is uh, a it's twice, it's actually coming up on February 29th and March 3rd at the Siegel Center, a Yiddish version of Death of a Salesman. Wow. I like it. And it's called Teutfunun salesman. I love how they spelled the Yiddish spelling of salesman is S E Y L S M A N. So S E Y L salesman. You can almost picture. You can hear the Yiddish accent behind it. But I mention it also because it was my father's. I was I was very fortunate to be raised. And again, not uh, not unlike many. Jews, I would say, in a household where culture, where literature, where the arts were deeply, deeply valued, and my father had a little bookshelf in our apartment on Plamondon in Montreal, and he would like label label as you would at your own library, and he saw the original production of *Death of a Salesman* on Broadway, and I know it affected him profoundly, and so here I thought this is almost a melding of all. My particular interest, my history, family—you know, larger than family—in terms of this play, of course, which is a seminal work, and so I just love the idea. And even again, Camp Dora—it's it's being presented by the Dora Wasserman Yiddish Theater, and I went to Jewish summer camps growing up in Montreal. And Dora Wasserman came up, and we had the Yiddish songs, etc. And just Yiddish, Yiddish as a language is such a beautiful, rich language. And I, I don't have many regrets in life, but typically when I was Nine or ten, my parents sent me, I think it was called the Wachewski School on Van Horn near Kotenej near to learn Yiddish. And, you know, being nine or ten, I couldn't wait to leave. And how I so regret that missed opportunity because it's such a beautiful language. It was my father's mama lotion. And uh, I would have loved uh, and this will there will be surtitles, by the way. But that brought me nachas. Great, well, great joy.
1: Yiddish is available on Duolingo, so it's never too late.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you're right. There you go. I'm still struggling with making my French passable now that I'm visiting Montreal on a regular basis. Awesome,
1: Phoebe, what's your Nachus or Broigas this week?
3: I'm doing a dual Nachus Broigas. Okay, Oof. so the yes, Nachus one-two punch. Yes, the, it's it's the same thing is going to be Nachus and Broigas. So the Nachus is David Tanis's. It's available to New York Times um, recipe subscribers. So. If what it's basically what it's a pretty simple recipe for homemade pita bread. So the nachos is it's nice to make pita bread at home. The broyghis is this recipe and more broadly what it says about recipes. So there's a a line in it. okay? for the best flavor, try to get freshly milled whole wheat flour, even though only little is called for in the recipe. It makes a difference. Now, like uh, there's only so much you could do. And it is this, I am biased by the fact that I have little children. I'm biased by the fact that I live in Canada. Unlike, I think David Tanis may live in Berkeley, California, where, you know, food may be a little bit nicer. I have a thing about recipes that ask for the impossible because I feel like that discourages home cooking and it just makes me despair about The bit my own ability is to get these special ingredients that need to be like procured throughout a very leisurely day. Um, If you're working full time and have little kids, you're probably not doing this. I'm not saying all recipes need to be geared towards that. But the fresh something about the freshly milled. I'm like I'm taking the flour out of the tub in. In the drawer, and I'm like, well, you know, like <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. I, and I'm just thinking, like, I'm, is anybody really going to taste?
2: I know, I know, uh, more than one person who's broken into, broken out into a cold sweat, trying to follow an auto Lenghi recipe mm. you have to go across town <laughs> to get that one little yes. Chinese, you know, spice. I mean, they've just said oh. it's. Written.
1: So first of all, oh my God, I have so much to say. So first of all, I love David Tannis. His his recipes are generally so simple. You're 100% right and so straightforward, if generally, just, and they're so flavorful. If you just
3: ignore the, 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 the little milk, bits, the,
1: yeah. um, I find that with Otolenghi, the the little things that he does to pack flavor in are sometimes so worth it. And then you have a new piece in your arsenal. My pet peeve with, with recipes that go wrong is um, the caramelizing the onions where they make you assume that it takes 10 minutes and it always takes an hour. And why do they ever tell you that it takes 10 minutes? And I think it's because they're afraid that you're never going to make the recipe if, if you do that. But that's always been my, my problem. My nachos this week, very simple, very straightforward. There was an article that has been sitting in an open tab for three weeks and I never got to it. And I should have, because it was, it's a short article and it wasn't so in depth and so amazing, but it was so important because it, you know, um, it's entitled, it's from JTA and it was called John Zorn's avant-garde Jewish music is finally on Spotify. His fans remain locked in debate. And I couldn't possibly think of a more Jewish way to discuss a very, very Jewish, very fascinating, uh, artist named John Zorn who has his own record label who for years was holding out on all of the digital streams and when everybody would come into my house and see all of the CDs that I had I would be like well yes I pay for a streaming service but look at how much music isn't on streaming services and I would point as one example right away to John Zorn's label, Sadik of which I had hundreds of records uh, hundreds of albums and he and I'd be like you see I can't get any of this on Spotify and now I can so I don't know what to say about that but I will still uh, collect them the artwork the the physical product is still beautiful. Um, the elaborate packaging on some of them is still, you know, second to none. But the debate behind whether you know it should be or it shouldn't be, and having that Jewish debate was was great. And uh, just the music of John Zorn in general is so fabulous. And uh, it's a little thorny to get into, but go for it. Great episode as always, everybody.
3: Thank you so much for joining
2: us. It was just really, really great. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending February 24th, Shabbat Parshat Tetzaveh. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca.